will never remain free if they are not willing, if need be, to fight for their vital interests. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Praise Yahweh and pass the ammunition. The Restoration Hour with Pastor Eli James. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yippee. Well, we're still uh, working on uh, integrating an, our new sound system and uh, going to have to work on it. I, unfortunately... Uh, did a trial of Dropbox, which is supposed to be an online service to, uh, you know, uh, store files and stuff. And, uh, when I decided not to go with it and I canceled it, they deleted a lot of my files. So I have to start all over with some of these things, including the, the settings for Rocket Broadcaster, which, uh, file I lost. So I'm uh, here, back here now on Butt. Uh, broadcast yourself using this or broadcast using this tool. And so tonight uh, we're going to go to the archives of AngloSaxonIsrael.com because I wanted to, uh, first of all, just a quick announcement. Uh, we have the calendars for uh, 2022 available uh, Brother Aber did a theme on COVID, exposing all the COVID lies that we've been having to endure for the last two and a half years. And so that's uh, a really outstanding calendar. And you can get a copy of that for a donation of $20 or more. Just send a check to ANP, uh, 900 Commerce Place, number 1016, Forsyth, Illinois. That's F-O-R-S-Y-T-H. Illinois 62535. And so tonight we're going to be doing the exoneration of Paul part three, which is Paul and the law. I will be, now that I'm really settled here in central Illinois, I will be populating the website anglo-saxonisrael.com. I had to abandon it a couple of years ago when I lost my webmaster and that was a Drupal site which requires sophisticated knowledge of programming. <laughs> well, and I had to switch to WordPress, but the WordPress site is uh, actually I have to teach myself and take a few courses to learn how to do the WordPress site. It's not as easy as people told me it was going to be. So uh, let's get started. Uh, I put the link in the chat room so that you can follow along. And this is... The Exoneration of Paul, Part 3, Paul Confirms the Law. And this is something that mainstream Judeo-Christianity has got all wrong. Uh, let me put it this way. When I started my book, The Great Impersonation, by the way, that's uh, also for sale at uh, at ANP for $40 if you want to order a copy of that $40 post-pay, just put in uh, TGI or The Great Impersonation and send a letter to the same address, ANP, 900 Commerce Place, 
number 1016. That's Forsyth, Illinois, 62535. And I will send you a copy of the book. Now, I just tried to place an order with my printer. However, uh, the he told me there's a paper shortage all of a sudden. I have about five copies left. I was just getting ready to place an order. And so right now I'm looking for a a printer that uh, would handle and do a decent job of, of printing this book. I had a really bad experience in Chicago with a Hindu printer whose the binding were really horrible. The book fell apart after, you know, after about six months. And so I had to suspend using him. And then uh, I wound up using Dave Gehari and his publishing company because he, his printer does excellent work, but then Gehari got sick and he's been out of commission for the last six months. Praise Yahweh. He's recovering. And, uh, but then I talked to him about another book order and he said, well, my printer can't get any paper. All right, so, well, guess what? You know, shortages, shortages are coming. And we know that the real reason for the war in Ukraine is to make us paupers, to pauperize us, so that we can't uh, get any food, we can't get any supplies, the prices are going to skyrocket. And this is all part of the master plan of the Rockefeller lockdown anyway, that, uh, you know, the, the uh, Operation Lockstep that the Rockefellers put out in 2010, predicting all this stuff that, uh, you know, COVID, the lockdown, the, uh, the wars, the high prices, the shortages. So you can expect from now on, folks, that these shortages and high prices will continue to get worse. So uh, become a prepper. I put a uh, link in the, uh, on the website, top page about prepping how that uh, you really need to start prepping now if you haven't started already and you can expect shortages there's empty shelves in certain stores around the country already you know gas prices are going up there may be gas prices or gasoline shortages and that's thanks to biden and the international lockdown it's all part of the plan but they're using this war in ukraine as the excuse for these shortages and high prices Whereas we know this was the plan all along, okay? So uh, go ahead and click on the link that I put in the chat room, webarchive.org. That is the uh, Wayback Machine, which has saved a lot of the old website, anglo-saxonisra.com. The only thing that they missed and is not accessible are the slideshows. So that's the first thing I'm going to do once I start populating the WordPress version of Anglo-Saxon Israel and then uh, make those available real quick. And then I'll start populating the uh, website again so uh, much more easily accessible. All right, so let's go to it. The exoneration of Paul. Paul confirms the law. Now, you know that... The Judeo Christians have been teaching that Paul, uh, what's the expression? He he uh, he, re- he rewrote the Bible. <laughs> he, oh, he reinvented Christianity. That's the expression we hear all the time. That Paul supposedly reinvented Christianity. Of course, no such thing ever happened. Paul verifies everything in Scripture, but the horrible translations that uh, we have been beset with 
Oh, and Brother Abear says that uh, those slideshows are available on his website. Is that Think Outside the Beast, Brother Abear, or is the other website? So that's great that uh, Brother Abear has those slideshows. So uh, now we're going to uh, talk about the exoneration of Paul, part three, which is Paul on the law. And let me put it this way. When I first started writing The Great Impersonation, in 1980, 1979, 1980, I was basically trying to document the fact that the Bible is about the two seed lines. Okay, and so Brother Abraham says uh, these uh, both sites have this. So thinkoutsidethebeast.com, www.thinkoutsidethebeast.com, and you can find the slideshows there. So what uh, what we see in modern Judeo-Christianity is a complete distortion. And the other one is www.ageoflaodicea.com. Okay, thank you, Brother Aber. So what you can see there is the utter distortion of the New Testament by the Judeo churches. This is all very deliberate, although most of the people who follow the Judeo churches are totally ignorant of how this deception has been brought about. But of course, it starts with the Jews and their definition of Gentile as being a non-Jew. Of course, the word Gentile was not in the either the Greek or the Hebrew. Those words simply mean nation, and you have to determine the, uh, the which nations are being talked about from the context of the various passages. So I realized this early on when I was doing the research for the great impersonation. And to my amazement, what was really, what really stood out from the very beginning as I started reading in uh, Genesis, by the time I got to the Abrahamic covenants, I figured out that the Bible is, no, is nothing like what the Judeo-Christian world presents it as. It is, in fact, a record of the genealogy from Adam through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob down to Yahshua Messiah, and, of course, carrying it out to the Judgment Day with the 12 tribes of Israel, 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes of Israel, comprising the 144,000. It's all, it's all bloodlines. It's totally bloodlines. That's what the Bible is all about. And it has been universalized. It has been sacralized, sacrilegiousized. I don't know what the word is. But uh, the the people who present the Bible to us through their own theology have utterly distorted the message, what we call the covenant message of Scripture and that's what the Bible is. It's the covenant message, the covenant that Yahweh made, first of all, with Adam and Eve, and then Seth, and all the patriarchs before Noah's flood, and then after Noah's flood, that that covenant relationship continues, and it was made through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, same bloodline, and then through the Israelites, and everything in the New Testament confirms these bloodlines. It's these horrible words, Jew, Gentile, and many others that have confused the issue and taken the emphasis off the covenants and off the bloodlines, okay? So let's get to it. Here is the exoneration of Paul, part three. 
And the first quotation is, Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Because everybody outside of identity, with very few exceptions, says that the the law has been done away with, and that Paul reinvented Christianity by doing away with the law, and by doing away with the covenants, etc., etc., Nothing could be further from Judaism, (laughs) Judeo-Christianity, than what the Bible actually teaches. Okay, so I'm going to quote Proverbs 28, verses 4 through 18. They that forsake the law praise the wicked. Isn't that what the antinomians do? They praise the wicked because they want to forgive everything they do and they want to save the souls of the non-Israelites where the Bible says nothing about that. But such as keep the law, contend with them. Okay, so the, the, the wicked ones contend with those of us who keep the law. Evil men understand not judgment, but they that seek Yahweh understand all. Better is the poor that walks in uprightness than he that is perverse in his ways, though he be rich. Right? We have a lot of those people. Whoso keeps the law is a wise son, but he that is a companion of riotous men shames his father. He that covers his sins shall not prosper, because you can't hide your sins from Yahweh. But whoso confesses and forsakes them shall have mercy. Happy is the man that fears always, that is, fears Yahweh and fears violation of the law. But he that hardens his heart shall fall into mischief. The Jews will get you. (laughs) No doubt about it. Whoso walks uprightly shall be saved. Let me repeat that. Whoso walks uprightly shall be saved. But he that is perverse in his ways shall fall at once. Okay, so be careful uh, about abandoning the law. Don't do it. it. You will get lost, very much lost. And in the New Testament, Yahshua says, Broad is the path that leadeth to destruction. <laughs> Narrow is the path that leadeth to salvation or leadeth to the kingdom. So it's very obvious. In fact, in the book of, uh, I think both uh, Enoch and uh, possibly Jubilees, there's a, there's a story, and uh, uh, Jeremiah's scribe, Baruch, the Apocalypse of Baruch, they all tell a story that the path is so narrow that you have to go single file. It's a not a wide path. You have to go single file. And I think in the Apocalypse of Baruch, it's very dramatic of saying, well, it's like a, a pathway uh, from one ledge to another, and beneath is f- flaming fire, you know, fires of hell beneath your feet. So you don't want to fall off that path because the fires of hell are awaiting you if you do, okay? So question, does Yahweh contradict himself? Was the law only for the Israelites of the Old Testament and not for their descendants in the New Covenant? If so, by what standard will he judge the world at the great day? But even Paul says, by what standard can judgment occur if there is no law? Is it true, as the dispensationalists teach, 
that the law was abolished at the cross. Okay, so the dispensationalism teaches basically that the Old Testament was for the Jews, but because the Jews rejected Christ, the New Testament is now for the church and or believers and or anybody you can scrape off the pavement. That's what the dispensationalists teach, okay? So, but nevertheless, the Jews will be saved, right? The Jews will be saved because God would not abandon anybody, would he? Well, what's the death penalty for? What's the flames of hell for? Okay, so there's so much the Judeos have to overlook to preach their false doctrine of dispensationalism, antinomianism, Judeo-Christianity. It has many names, but it's all perversion. Perversion of the, it's all apostasy is what it really is. That, that That's because the true path is very, very narrow. It's single file. And we can see from the way things are working out in the world right now that We'd better get in line. <laughs> We'd better get in line. And somehow that the multitude of people w- wanted to cross that bridge are going to have to funnel their way in, right, to a single file. No fighting. Stay calm. Stay collected. Because if you obey his laws, you will be protected. So, But that's a single file ledge that we have to trans, transverse from one precipice to the other, and that is where we enter into the kingdom. So it's not going to be easy. And everything in the New Testament confirms that it's not going to be easy, but it will be available to the remnant of Israel. Okay? So was the law only for the Israelites of the Old Testament? and not for their descendants in the new covenant? If so, by what standard will he judge the world at the great day? He's going to judge us by our violations of the law. That's how he's going to judge us. Is it true, as the dispensationalists teach, that the law was abolished at the cross? Furthermore, and along with the law, were the covenants, which pertained exclusively to Israel, suddenly broadened to include all races and nations? If these doctrines are true, then Yahweh has abrogated all of his promises to true Israel. But Yahweh said, quote, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed, unquote. That's Malachi 3.6. Either God is a liar or the dispensationalists are. With respect to the writings of Paul, it is evident that Paul was always contending against evil men. If Paul was saying that the law had been abolished, what what would be the basis of his contentions? The mere fact that Paul constantly admonished evildoers is proof that he was not an antinomian. Quote, for if you live after the flesh, you shall die, which means the lusts of the flesh. If you, But if you through the Spirit mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live, unquote. Now these words were written after... Yahshua perished on the cross. Okay, so have modern Judeo-Christians been living after the flesh? If they have abandoned his laws, yes, they have. Uh, It may not be lust, it may not be greed, but nevertheless, they have abandoned the covenant. 
And if you abandon the covenant, your chances of getting into the kingdom are greatly reduced. And of course, that's Romans 8.13. Notice the conditional if in that statement. Paul was by no means advocating a blanket salvation, quote-unquote. He was advocating a conditional salvation based on the law, and as we will see, also based on good works. Quote, your servant am I. Give me understanding, and I shall know your instructions. It is time to take action, Yahweh. Your law is being broken. So I love your commandments more than gold purest gold. So I rule my life by your precepts. I hate all deceptive paths, unquote. That's Psalm 119, verses 125 to 128. I quote, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, or Master, Master, shall say, uh, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven, so if you want to get into heaven, you need to be like heaven. <laughs> if you're so unlike heaven that uh, your vibrations are antagonistic to heaven, to the kingdom, you won't get in. You're going to have a real horrible fever because your body will have to go through a cleansing process to get there. Most of us won't won't make it because we have abandoned his laws and we have no intention of keeping them. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and in your name have cast out devils and in your name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work lawlessness. Matthew seven twenty one. So, but they said, well, I mean, the, the law was done away with at the cross, so that statement does not apply. Well, we'll find out otherwise. These verses define faithfulness to the Father's will, which is what all true Israelites must practice. Faithfulness is obedience to Yahweh's moral laws, which are the basis of personal conduct and also of good government. Anyone who says that Paul is against the moral laws has been deceived by the antinomians. Paul does not use the word faith as an antonym for the word law. That is a misconception. Over the last two millennia, especially recently, the word faith has developed a false, deluded meaning. If a word like faithfulness, which represents taking action, can be replaced by a word like faith, which merely represents having a mental attitude. <laughs> and it's, it's not always a positive mental attitude is a good thing, but it's not always going to get you where you need to go. You have to obey Yahweh's laws in addition to that. Devoid of the responsibility to act upon that attitude, then a major shift in a doctrine has been accomplished. So the word faith, as used by the modern Judeo-Christians, is devoid of the concept of faithfulness, which means you have to live your life according to the covenants, according to his laws, according to the promises he made to us. And, of course, Yahweh is faithful. He always delivers the goods. He always keeps his promises. And he has guaranteed that Israel, true Israel, will survive into eternity. But only 
the remnant, the faithful remnant, will survive. Introduction. Thankfully, not all of modern churchianity is antinomian. There is still a rational strain of Christian thought, although it rarely exists outside of the theologian's study. And by this, uh, I mean that there are independent theologians and some theologians within the denominations who disagree with uh, antinomianism, disagree with dispensationalism, although they might have a version of it which does not exclude the law, etc., so you'll find practically within every denomination someone who uh, does not follow the crowd and you know, uses ration and reason and actual scripture and understands scripture. However, these people are rare. Most of them have fallen for the false definitions of Jew and Gentile, all right, which don't belong in scripture at all. And I'll be covering that during today's broadcast. The emotionalism of popular Christianity is largely devoid of reason. Oh, Jesus, 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 I love you, Jesus. But he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So if you don't keep his commandments, that means you don't love him. You may proclaim love. You may call yourself a Christian. Uh, who is it? What's that singer's name? Madonna. I don't know if Madonna claims to be a Christian, but uh, one of these famous singers who uh, you know, who has, has done lots of number one hit songs, she claims to be a Christian. Although, you know, she promotes homosexuality, transgenderism, you name it. She promotes everything. And she calls it love, right? Yeah, we have to love everybody, no matter how evil they are. That's what she calls love. And that's what the antinomians basically believe, whether they can enunciate it in those ways or not. So this is what we're dealing with when we're dealing with the very muddle-headed Judeo-Christians. Okay. So, given this irrational state of affairs, I was delighted to come across this pronomian, and nomos is the Greek word for law, this pronomian commentary in the Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible. Quote, The cause of man's estrangement from God is the sin of man. Now, of course, this, is, this person is a universalist, and he's talking about all races, where we know that the Bible is not about all races. It's about the covenant people from Adam down to Yahshua Messiah and the rest of us, fellow Israelites. But this is way better than uh, what most Judeo-Christians profess already. His persistent disobedience to the will of God. God is a holy God. In spite of his great love and boundless mercy, he cannot treat sin as though it did not matter, for it corrupts and degrades human life and thwarts all the purposes of God for man's good. How about abortion? Doesn't that corrupt and degrade? God stands ready to forgive and to heal the, pertin the penitent sinner. But where man continues deliberately and defiantly in his wrongdoing, God by his very nature cannot be complacent about it or indulgently indifferent to it. Dreadful penalties are ordained as a consequence of sin. This is fire and brimstone, folks. God is not mocked. 
For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. Here he's quoting Galatians 6, 7. Okay. Your sins will cry out for judgment, for punishment, unless you repent. This law of retribution is part of what is meant by the wrath of God, which rests upon the unrepentant sinner. Romans 1.18 And which finds expression in the solemn warning, quote, The wages of sin is death, unquote. Romans 6.23 Indeed, the sinner is already dead through trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1 And this is an article entitled Atonement, Volume 1, of the Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible. Uh, I'm sorry, I forgot to list the author. I should have done that. Maybe I can update this article for you know, the new version of Anglo-Saxon Israel. Did you notice how the author drew his pronomian argument from the verses in the epistles of Paul? The guy who has abolished the law? By creatively ignoring the pronomian statements contained in Paul's writings, the doctrine of antinomianism has deceived millions of unsuspecting sheeple. This sermon will attempt to explain the how and why of this false theology, which has turned scripture on its head. And I can comment here that this deception is so pervasive, so firmly established within the Judeo churches, which is virtually everything outside of identity, that Virtually every modern Christian, so-called, believes all of this falsely reinterpreted doctrine. Okay? That's really what's going on. Because it's being preached from the pulpits. And, of course, Paul told us that in these end days, just before the second coming, there will be a great apostasy. What does that mean? It means a great turning away from the true true faith, which is what we are witnessing right now. Okay? And this article is an attempt to document that. Okay. First heading here, the antinomian deception. Let me state categorically that had the founding fathers of America been antinomian in their thinking, there could not have been a rebellion against George III and the Bank of England. The founders, who were all Bible-believing Christians, uh, they actually kept uh, Thomas Jefferson out of the deliberations of the Constitution, were ardent, but actually they did, uh, to some extent, Patrick Henry, who was probably the most uh, fire-breathing Christian among them, but he did influence, in fact, he was responsible for the first ten amendments. And it's a good thing he was responsible for those because we might not have the right to keep and bear arms <laughs> and the right of free speech and free assembly and all that stuff. But we know that the perver- perverse ones, the international Jews, have been trying to undermine our Constitution just as much as, well, they have. They have undermined our Constitution as much as they have undermined our Bible. But we're here to make sure that process does not reach a victory for them. We're here to stand in the way of all the nonsense that they have gotten our white people who call themselves Christians to believe, and also white people who are anti-Christians, such as white nationalists. They don't understand the Bible either. And I can't blame the white nationalists 
for looking askance at modern Christianity and saying, what is this? <laughs> These people are, are what, soppish. They, they have no idea. They don't make any sense. There's no rhyme or reason to what they believe. As the opening paragraph said, they're just a bunch of emotional people who, you know, they're, they're on a high, an emotional high, and with no rationality behind their religion. It's interesting that there is a strain in the Catholic Church of rational belief. However, they follow Catholic law instead of biblical law, which they fail to realize that Catholic law is not the same as biblical law. There's nothing in there about Mary being the uh, mediatrix of the universe, right? Or the sacraments that the Catholic Church has invented. No, the Catholic faith has invented all kinds of rituals that cannot be found in Scripture. Therefore, we in identity reject Catholicism as urgently and as strongly as we reject Judaism. Okay? But nevertheless, we have to hold out hope for our white Anglo-Saxon, Caucasian, Israelite brethren who have been led astray, who have been taking the broad path. Now, there a lot of them are just going to fall over the cliff. They're going to rush like lemmings to the edge of the cliff, and they're going to fall over into that fire instead of getting in line for that narrow path, that single-file path that leads to the kingdom. That is the image that we have to keep in mind. It's a single-file path that leads into the kingdom. So you have to be cool, calm, and collected. You have to obey all the laws as the Bible constantly tells us to, and we cannot stray from that path, okay? So, had they, had the founders been mere mental Christians and not active Christians, then there would have been no American Revolution. There would have been no America today like the modern antinomian distortionist churches of today's lukewarm dispensation. They would have, yeah, there is dispensationalism. It's the lukewarm apostate church. They would have allowed inactive belief to replace true faithfulness, which they didn't. They, they had a militia, and the militia is a biblical concept. Okay, George Washington believed in a personal God. He prayed to God every day at, uh, I was going to say Waterloo, sorry, <laughs> at, uh, at, uh, in that, in a snowy, uh, 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 a place along the Delaware River, right? Yeah, he prayed. You know, deists do not pray. They just, uh, deism says, well, God created the universe and then uh, he, ba- he abandoned the universe to its own devices, right? That, that's deism. There's no way that Washington was a deist. He had a preacher uh, warm up the troops every day with a sermon from the Bible, of course. And he was a, a practicing Christian when he was a civilian, both before and after the war. He was a, a church attending Christian, although. Uh, I would have to say he was more or less an independent Christian. He wasn't uh, He wasn't really happy with any of the denominations, but he was a regular attendee at his local church. Okay, So, there's no doubt, George Washington was a full-blown Christian. Now, on the contrary, the Founding Fathers practiced their faith, putting their principles into action. This is what Yahshua taught us to do. How is it possible that this philosophy has been so badly perverted? Well, it has taken 2,000 years. 
and especially in the last 100 years or so, now going on 120 years, when the Zionists started preaching that the Jews are Israel and uh, distorting the words of Paul. The Jews actively, and of course they have taken over the publication of virtually every Bible society. So the Jews publish our Bibles for us. They interpret it for us. They tell us, Paul, that reinvented Christianity and that we owe the Jews a debt of gratitude for composing the Old Testament and all this absolute rot. None of which has any basis in historical fact. So this is what we're dealing with. This 2,100-year-old perversion of scriptures started with the Pharisees. Okay, that tradition of the elders roundly condemned by Yahshua, Messiah. Okay, I contend that the doctrine of antinomianism is a deliberately conceived, sophisticated ploy, a tactic, which true Israel's enemies have used to get us, the true Israelites, to fall asleep in our faithfulness with such doctrines as antinomianism. Now, the word faith can represent faithfulness, and it can represent belief. But we're going to find out that there is no such thing as an empty faith or as mere belief. Mere belief, no, never. It never means mere belief. It always means the faith of the Israelite people, which which means that we have to live according to that faith, and that's called faithfulness. With such doctrines as antinomianism, faith only, don't offend the sinner. <laughs> uh, the distortionists have turned us into zombies so that we have become Christian couch potatoes. Do nothing, Christians. And this is exactly what the Jews want. This tactic has worked with remarkable success as so many modern quote-unquote Christians support denominations that have created a non-resistance to evil. A non-resistance to evil. Didn't didn't, uh, Yahshua say, uh, resist not evil? Well, he was talking about your, your brethren. When you and your fellow Israelite that live in the same community, or maybe some other Israelite that was walking through your town and did you wrong. This is confined to Israelites. It's confined to the brethren. When your brother does you wrong, you turn the other cheek rather than lash back. That's what that means. Resist not evil. Of course, the the followers of paganism, white paganism and white nationalism don't understand that the the whole Bible is confined to Israelites and not to the whole world. So they believe, but but it's it's true. The Judeo Christians actually believe that if an invading army comes into your town, you should just uh, let them roll over you with their tanks and not resist the evil. That's what they actually believe. Of course, their theologians, most of them, actually do know better. But this easy path keeps the uh, Judeo-Christians coming back and throwing their shekels into the baskets. And so that's what modern Christianity is all about. It's just keeping, you know, but uh, it's actually finally beginning to backfire because so many of these uh, so-called pastors have been preaching, you should you should take the shot, right? And so, and the Catholic Church has, oh, since the early 60s, since they had a, shortfall of priests entering the that that ministry 
they began allowing homosexuals to fill the Catholic, uh, you know, vestry. And that's why today we have all of this child molestation going on in the Catholic Church. Yet, Catholics seem to look the other way. Even though children are being (laughs) molested on a regular basis within the Catholic Church. But let's continue. So, so, so that so many modern Christians support denominations that have created a non-resistance to evil, as if merely believing in Jesus Christ is all that is required from the Christian. And that is actually what a lot of so-called Christians believe. That all you have to do is believe in Jesus Christ, and you claim to love him, but they know not what they love. What they love is some hero figure, is some uh, you know universal loving uh, Freemason. <laughs> that, that's the kind kind of Jesus they love: liberty, equality, fraternity. That's what they believe, and the rest will take care of itself. The ostrich is in the pulpit, as well as in the pews. Paul clearly tells us that Yahshua is our example. An example must be imitated, not merely observed. Quote, Now these things were our example, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Unquote. This is 1 Corinthians 10.6. See also John 13.15. Christ was our example. An example must be followed. Christianity has never until recently been a spectator sport. It's only been for the last hundred years or so. The fact is that the antinomians and their ilk are standing on the sidelines of their followers, watching the game, while real Christians are on the field, building the kingdom and engaging the enemy. Of course, we haven't got the power for a head-on collision. We have to use prayer and education and you know fellowship and get, getting ourselves ready for the big struggle, the Battle of Armageddon, which is looming, folks. The war in Ukraine is the first shot of the Battle of Armageddon because the rest is it's just their excuse to shut down the economy and pauperize us. There is no doubt that Christianity has been deliberately emasculated and depoliticized so that the international Zionist agenda could go forward without any moral outrage from either the pulpits or the pews. The Antichrist has succeeded in turning Christians into zombies, and the night of the living dead will surely be the result. Of course, COVID has turned a lot of our people into zombies. James tells us, quote, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Why don't the appeasers of evil ever quote this verse? It's because this verse is unequivocal in its opposition to appeasement. The distortionists love to quote Matthew 5 where he says, resist not evil. But the distortionists interpret this verse from their universalistic context, which assumes that Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount to all people. This is incorrect. The Sermon on the Mount was exclusively for true Israel. Quote, I come not but unto the lost sheep, that is exiled sheep of the house of Israel, 
unquote, Matthew 15:24 and 10:6. It was not intended for those of the other races of the world. The proof of this is contained in Matthew 13:10 through 17, where the apostles asked Yahshua, quote, "Why speak you in parables?" unquote. His answer was that there are people whom he does not want to understand the gospel because the doctrine is only intended for true Israelites. This is clearly what he says. He does not want non-Israelites to understand lest they pervert the gospel as the Jews have done, as the antinomians have done. And many of these so-called preachers are actually Jews pretending to be Christians. They're homosexuals pretending to be Christians, etc. Freemasons pretending to be Christians. Uh, There's that one Texas preacher who uh, we know is absolutely a Freemason. Christians are doing a good enough job of distorting the scriptures already. Speaking to the mixed multitude of contemporary Judea, Yahshua had to couch his teachings in symbolism and parables, which could only be grasped and implemented by the sons and daughters of the covenants. Understanding the exclusivity of Christ's words on the mount gives the sermon the correct context, which is about how we Israelites are supposed to behave towards one another. It has nothing to do with outsiders. The proof of this is that Yahshua's command to the apostles that they should carry a sword with them when they go out to spread the gospel. If an enemy soldier draws his sword against you, are you to wait until he slashes your cheek with his sword before you begin to defend yourself? Luke 22, 35-38. Jesus asked them, the eleven apostles, When I sent you out without a purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, no, not a thing. He said to them, but now the one who has a purse must take it, and likewise a bag. And the one who has no sword must sell his cloak and buy one. Right? If you are unarmed, you better be armed. And when Peter cut off the ear of one of the the, the soldiers that betrayed Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. He didn't say to Peter, how dare you? You shouldn't be armed. (laughs) We Christians are supposed to let ourselves be killed. He didn't didn't admonish Peter. Well, he did admonish Peter for uh, cutting off the guy's ear, and he put it back and healed it, but he did not tell Peter that he should not be armed. By the way, Peter had to be a damn good swordsman to, to cut off the guy's ear, right? And not hurt the rest of his body. For I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered among the lawless, right? The Pharisees accused him of being lawless. And indeed, what is written about me is being fulfilled. They, the disciples, said, See, Lord, here are two swords. It is enough, he replied. So don't let any Judeo Christian tell you that we're not supposed to be armed. Jesus was not a pacifist. When Yahshua said at Matthew 5.39, resist not evil, he meant it in a completely different context from the words of the Apostle James. To be precise, he meant resist not the evil coming from your fellow Israelite, your neighbor, who accuses you or slaps you on the cheek, unquote. 
His meaning was, if you are offended by a fellow Israelite, you are not to retaliate in kind evil for evil. It's about retaliation. If your brother hears a false rumor about you and gets in your face and accuses you and curses you in front of a bunch of other people and slaps you on the cheek, you have to have the... Well, first of all, courage not to strike back and not get angry. You have to have control of yourself and say, hey, wait a minute, brother. I'm not guilty of what you're accusing me of. Remember, there's two sides to every story. And you may think I'm guilty, but you haven't heard my side of the story yet. And if you approach your brother who slapped you on the cheek in that manner, he may just repent of what he just did. The true meaning is not obvious from these three words alone, taken out of context, so the context must be considered. Let's look at this quotation again, this time adding some more of the verse. Quote, But I say to you that you resist not evil. Another way this quotation is taken out of context is by not quoting the whole verse. They simply take the, that isolated idea, which is part of the larger thought, without reference to the whole sentence, which states, But I say to you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. Okay? This is not talking about a blow from an enemy, a non-Israelite enemy, or by a sword. We're just talking about a slap on the cheek. Verses 40 through 47 continue with the same light of thought, always stressing that we are not to return evil for evil. Two wrongs don't make a right. Whosoever of our brethren does us a moral wrong must be confronted with reason and moral indignation, but we are never to retaliate in kind. Whatever the issue is, it must be worked out either between me and that brother And if we can't resolve it between ourselves, then uh, we take it to our other brethren, our families, okay? And if that doesn't work, then we take it to the judges. In other words, we are not to take the law into our own hands. We must first inquire as to why our brother is injuring us. And we must be ready to forgive the offender, even though he has unjustly persecuted us and slapped us on the cheek. Paul completely confirms this principle at Romans 12, 17 through 21. None of his none of this applies to non-Israelites, nor does it apply to someone who attacks you with a sword or any weapon besides his hand. In fact, it doesn't even have to involve a hand; it just can be a false accusation, which is injurious enough. There was a reason why Yahshua told his apostles to carry their swords with them; they were to use them when violently attacked. We are to be peacemakers within our own community. But this idea does not apply to an invading army that has been sent to destroy us. In Matthew 5, verses 38 through 48, are the context within which verse 39 must be understood. To snatch verse 39 out of its proper context is poor scholarship and lousy religion. Then verse 48 sums it up by, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. I mean, it's obey the law completely. Or be whole. Be. Try to find the correct words here. Uh, Be strong. Be strong. Don't allow your emotions to get the best of you. He has not forgiven us time and time again. 
Or, or has he not forgiven us time and time again when he could have executed swift and just punishment? This is also why he tells us that we must forgive our brethren 70 times 7 in order to demonstrate that his will among the brethren of our community is acting in us. This is called brotherly love. Hence, when we violate our brethren, we violate him. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. When he said, resist not evil, Yahshua was talking about fellow Israelites. James, on the other hand, was talking about the devil, the deceiver, and those who do his bidding. All right, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Completely different idea. Yahshua was talking about your kinsmen, those of your community. We absolutely must resist the devil and his children, the Jews. Our attitude to our kinsmen must be shaped by the law, which states, love one another. Nowhere does Scripture command us to love the Edomite Jews. Scripture unequivocally tells us to have nothing to do with them. Our response to our brethren, who are part of the true Israelite community, must be tempered with love and restraint, so that we do not perpetuate an injustice or make it worse by knee-jerk retaliation, such as the Hatfields and the McCoys. If our response to an injustice is to commit another injustice, we are not only violating the law, we are violating our brothers and sisters. Folks, this type of faithfulness requires discipline and requires a lot more love than most Judeo-Christians have ever contemplated using. Next heading, covenant theology versus universalism. Let me repeat the operating principle here. In real estate, the important factor is location, location, location. The, the better the location, the higher the value. In Bible scholarship, the important factor is context, context, context. By taking words, phrases, and verses out of context, the Judeo churches have developed non-biblical and anti-biblical doctrine. The Universalists in particular have developed an overarching philosophy of Scripture which recognizes no principle but universalism. Okay? They utterly reject covenant theology, the exclusivity of it. Thus, they recognize no contextual distinction in Scripture, even though the Bible demands that we distinguish between Israelites and non-Israelites, between the covenant people and those who are outside the covenants. They ignore the historical differences between Israelites and non-Israelites. They ignore racial differences. They ignore the anti-Christian outbursts of those who they are trying to convert. Let's see. The Catholic Church has been trying to convert the Jews for, what, 1,700 years? Has it worked? And they ignore the abject failures of those efforts. They ignore the specificity of the covenants. Only Christian identity teaches that the exclusive covenant relationship between Israel and Yahweh is eternal. Always applies. This is what the Bible actually teaches. Jeremiah 31, 35 through 37. All of the other churches teach that the covenants were transformed from the Israelites to the church or to spiritual Israel. We are the real old-time religion. The rest is modernism. Modern churchianity has become apostate. CI is the only biblical theology left. As Paul said, quote, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts or their own judgment, 
I don't like God's law, so I'm I'm just going to believe what I want to believe. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. 2 Timothy 4.3. That time is now. We see it all around us. From this unsound universalistic perspective, their itching ears wish to hear the only statements that can be applied to everyone everywhere since they are, uh, since they are willing to convert, quote-unquote, convert anyone or anything to their universalistic religion. Now, their denominations are riveted on putting butts in the pews and collecting more shekels. That and they, they hope to increase their congregations in this manner. However, we know now that Christians are leaving the denominations in droves because it's not working. They can see it's not working. But the only churches that are still flourishing are the big mega churches that get a lot of publicity on television. A subtle imperialism, is it not? Christian identity is the only covenant theology in existence. The rest is apostasy. The reality is the Bible is to, by, for, and about the covenant people exclusively. We must therefore expose the false context of the distortionists and read the scriptures in the right in the light of the exclusive covenants which pertain to no other people than true Israel. Romans eleven twenty five through twenty seven. Because of this artificially expanded context, the Universalists have created the racial and social quagmire that exists today. How is that working, folks? Which is a cesspool of immorality and error. Also, they are unable to explain very specific prophecies, which have been fulfilled only by true Caucasian Israel. Hence, they must ignore these very specific prophecies or reinterpret them according to their false context. The Bible speaks only of an exclusive dispensationalism. True, biblical dispensationalism actually tells us that this modern world of apostianity is like vomit in his mouth. As the last church age of Revelation, the church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church, will be spewed out of his mouth. Revelation three fourteen through 22 Have you ever seen so many lukewarm zombies walking around? They call themselves Christians. Okay, this is what we're up against in the modern world with the rest of Judeo-Christianity, with the rest of our people who have fallen for this false doctrine. What is the meaning of not under the law? It is obvious that the antinomians believe that the expression not under the law means that the law no longer exists. But this cannot be as Paul would be hopelessly contradicting himself. What's going on? Let's see how a couple of different commentators handle this language. First, let's hear from the Judeo-Christian perspective, Mr. Vance Stinson, referring to Psalms 119, 97 through 112. Mr. Stinson says, quote, Paul affirms that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Romans 7:12. Like the psalmist, Paul internalizes God's commandments. And this is what happened at Pentecost, 33 AD. Quote, For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self. Verse 22. The apostate strongly, denou- oh, sorry, the apostle strongly denounces the idea that Christians, through faith, 
overthrow the law, declaring instead that we uphold the law, Romans 3.31. But that verse is totally ignored by the antinomians. The psalmist declares that God's word, his revealed will as expressed through his law, is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119, verse 105. It informs its hearers of the attitudes and actions that please and displease God. Similarly, Paul affirms that, quote, all scripture, which certainly includes the Torah, or section known as the law, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16 The law, then, is God's moral and ethical standard, the means through which his good and perfect will is revealed. This is a Judeo-Christian, mind you. Meditation upon the law and obedience to its commandments result in wisdom, knowledge, insight, and understanding. It is indeed a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It teaches us how to live. But no, most Judeo-Christians are their own law. Whatever feels right to them, that's what they do. The current term Torah, translated law in the Old Testament, literally means teaching. The name itself indicates that the primary purpose of the law is to teach. This is precisely, well, I mean, are you taught for no reason? (laughs) Are you taught so that you can learn and do? Obviously, yes. This is precisely the function of the law the psalmist has in mind in his poetic descriptions of the law as the source of knowledge, wisdom, and instruction in righteousness. This is the educative role of the law. However, the law has another function. And understanding this function is vital to a correct understanding of the hard sayings of Paul's epistles. The second function is best described as the judicial role of the law. In its second function, the law acts as a custodian, but only for those who are not in Christ. In other words, if you're not under the law, if you are acting in faithful, another law is not going to punish you because you are already in that state of mind of righteousness, of actively pursuing lawfulness. Okay, now you may you might make mistakes now and then. And when you do, you apologize for them. Oops, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Pardon me, I erred. But when you're if you are truly a disciple of Christ, Yahshua Messiah then you will not commit evil act, because he didn't. The law. In its second function, the law acts as, oh, sorry, custodian. But only for those who are not in Christ. It is this role of the law Paul has in mind when he says, you are not under the law, but under grace, Romans 6.14. And when he describes the law as a custodian that kept us under its power until Christ came, Galatians 3.24. So, when you slip and err and commit a crime, and you may do this, let's say you had too much to drink, and you did something really bad, okay, well, then then you slipped. Then, Then you're under the law. Then the law says you must be punished. But for those of us who uh, act in faithful righteousness, that law doesn't apply to us because we're not. We're supposed to be 
non-offenders, for lack of a better term. To understand the judicial role of the law, it is first necessary to understand the relationship between the law and sin. Paul writes, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I should not have known sin. I should not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, finding opportunity in the commandment, wrought in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. Romans 7, 7, 8. I really think this is a bad translation. I don't have my uh, Moffat translation handy. But yeah, so a lot of this stuff is very confusing. But the basic point is that the antinomians will ignore any positive statement that Paul makes about the law and uh, simply say, well, he never confirms the law. He absolutely does. The author continues, if there were no law, sin would not exist. That is correct, if there were no no law, because sin is defined by the law. But because there is a law, sin does exist. Now, if you are a righteous Israelite, then sin does not exist for you. And we can go from day to day without offending anybody, without doing anything wrong. We may make mistakes. We may take the wrong turn at the the next highway. Okay. We may do things that inadvertently offend, but then as good Christians, as law-abiding Christians, we are willing to make amends and not worry about it because Yahweh will reward us when we make, uh, make amends. Therefore, it is through the law that we become aware that we are sinners. Yes, very good. Well, he's actually, uh, uh, now he quotes Paul. It is, quote, through the commandment that sin becomes sinful beyond measure, Romans 7, 13. It is this relationship between sin and the law that Paul has in view when he says, quote, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, is in the law. 1 Corinthians 15, 56. And when he explained that our sinful passions are aroused by the law, Romans, our awareness of them is aroused by the law. Paul points out that sin entered the world through Adam's trespass and that the law came in to increase the trespass, Romans 5.20. So to make ourselves aware, to, to make us ashamed of the trespass. Again, notice that the relationship between sin and the law, by identifying sin and by making us aware that we are sinners and therefore under condemnation, the law informs us of our need for a Savior, one who can blot out our record of sins and deliver us from the sentence of death. But until we come to the Savior, the law holds us in its custody declaring us sinners and pronouncing the death sentence upon us, in this limited sense, the law is a curse to us. Yeah, only if we break it. It's a curse only if we break it. The law then has two roles. First, it is our instructor, the educative role, revealing to us God's way of life, the path he desires that we follow. It expresses the good and perfect will of God, not only explicitly through its many commandments, statutes, and judgments, but implicitly through the creation and historical narratives. 
Second, the law acts as our custodian, the judicial role, but only until we come to con- conversion through faith in, in Christ. By identifying us as sinners and demanding punishment for our sins, in other words, we no longer want to be sinners. We, we've left that lifestyle behind. But if, we, if it creeps up on us and we sin again, we're definitely going to get punished. Okay, The only way to avoid punishment is to not sin. The law holds us in custody. Knowledge of the law's high standards increases our moral awareness and personal responsibility, thus eliminating ignorance as an excuse. Now, I like that. That's good. Thus eliminating ignorance as an excuse. Wow. A lot of people cultivate ignorance, don't they? Now, sin becomes exceedingly sinful. But when we come to conversion through faith in Christ, and I would stress that really means faithfulness, we have to demonstrate, and I think this, this author is agreeing with that principle, that you have to avoid sinning. The law's role, and that's an active role. Avoid sinning is an action, right? <laughs> okay, because we are tempted constantly. The law's role as custodian is abolished. No longer can the law demand our death, for God has declared us not guilty. No longer can the law declare us transgressors, for the record of our sins has been blotted out. The curse of the law has been removed, Galatians 3.13. Now, here Paul is actually talking about the, the past, what the, uh, what they call it, the redemption at the cross accomplished. And this is another mistake that the Judeo-Christians make. Namely, they assume that uh, the, the sacrifice, the, the Passover, which is coming up, uh, not this coming weekend, the following weekend, uh, was you know, for all future acts. No. No, it's only for those past, past sins. In the future, we have to perform, uh, well, we could call it penance, but uh, we have to admit that our sin and ask, ask for forgiveness. Uh, repentance. We have to be repentant, and if we're not repentant, then our future sins will not be forgiven. Knowledge of the two roles of the law sheds significant light on the seemingly contradictory passages of Paul's epistles. We should now be able to see how Paul can insist upon meeting the requirements of the law, as in Galatians 5:13 through 21, while without contradiction, speaking of the law's transitory role, Galatians 3:19, 24 through 25. Okay, and then it gives the source here, Bible study, Apostle Paul. I wouldn't go so far as to say that the custodian role is abolished by grace. Its function will certainly return if we fall away from his will. Under the old eye-for-an-eye system, punishment was swift and often fatal. The law was external. It was imposed upon us by the Levitical priesthood. It was force. The priests and the councils of elders were obligated to execute justice and judgment. Under the new covenant, we ourselves are expected to be custodians of the law. All right? If we accept the law as written in our hearts, as prophesied in Jeremiah 31, we are no longer under the law, subject to its penalties. So that's what the expression under the law means. We're no longer under the law. It means we are no longer subject to its penalties. Why? Because we are guiltless. If we internalize the law, we are the law. 
It flows out of us. And this is precisely what Yahshua meant when he said, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. The only way you can know Yahweh is by obeying his law. That, in that way, you are like him. You become like him. By doing this, you gradually get to know him. The more you know him, the more you like it. <laughs> the more you like him, the more you become like him, which is the objective of the new covenant as specifically prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 31, Okay, that the law would be written in our hearts. To put it another way, if you want to have a personal relationship with Yahshua, try obeying his laws. You can't possibly know him if you're a sinner. Quote, if you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, 15, John 14, 21, 15, 10, 1 Corinthians 7, 19. Okay, so this is how we get to know him. You can't know him if you are a sinner. He rejects sinners. <laughs> yes, you have to have ears to hear, which means you have to have understanding, okay? But how can you have understanding if you're constantly disobeying his laws? You're playing with fire, okay? Our second commentator is from the non-seedline camp of identity, Stephen Jones. In his book, The Secrets of Time, uh, he deals with the subject of how Yahweh's laws and punishments have been and are being fulfilled according to his prescribed cycles of time. The law of return is commonly understood as what goes around comes around. Paul actually teaches this when he says, God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. If you sow evil, you will reap evil. These are the words of Paul. Galatians 6-7. Isn't it clear that if we sin, we will reap the consequences of that sin? Well, no, the antinomians don't believe that. As long as our intentions are good, we will not be punished. That's what they believe. They really believe that. And if we do good, we will reap the consequences of that good. Well, don't you want to be rewarded for being for doing good? No, that doesn't mean anything. It's, it's only your intentions that mean anything. How then can anyone say that Paul is teaching that good works are of no consequence? They can't because he is not saying that. Nor is he saying that the law has been abolished. Nor is he saying that, that sin no longer exists. In asking the question, has any part of the law been put away? Stephen Jones says this, quote, Your view of the law will determine your view of sin. Many Christians believe that God legalized all sin. Others believe that he legalized only certain sins, but upheld a few, such as the Ten Commandments. Either view is what the Bible calls lawless, a lawless attitude. No laws were repealed, but some did change form. Now, that's obviously the sacrificial laws were abolished, but you could still say that they changed form because since we no longer have the Levitical priesthood to enforce them, we have to enforce them in ourselves. We have to change ourselves and act accordingly. No longer is it necessary to sacrifice a lamb at the temple to receive forgiveness of sins. As a general rule, the moral laws remained intact. Well, no, they did. The moral laws re re remained intact wholly, completely. Not generally, 
completely. <laughs> Only the means of justification or purification from sin were altered. The things done in the tabernacle or temple were changed, but all the laws dealing with our fellow men outside of the tabernacle or temple have remained to define sin and make us uh, make sin sinful. There is no crime unless there is a law to make it a crime. This is basically saying the same thing as our previous author. This does not mean that anyone is obligated to obey the Jewish laws. Jewish law is Talmudic rather than biblical. Talmudic law is what Jesus called the tradition of men, Mark 7, 8, or the tradition of the elders, Matthew 15, 2. These were Jewish interpretations of the law, which were not only incorrect, but they actually rendered God's law void. And so have the antinomians. So have the Judeo-Christians. Jesus had harsh words for the Pharisees for putting away God's law through their traditions. Jesus put away many Jewish legal interpretations because they made void the law of God. But Jesus never once put away God's law. He knew the intent of the lawmaker and he gave it its interpretation according to what his father intended from the beginning. That's from page two from his book, The Secrets of Time by Stephen Jones. And back to my commentary here. I totally agree with these statements that Yahweh's moral law has not been altered in any way. The only thing that was changed was how the punishments and penalties are to be administered. To put it succinctly, the priestly ordinances of blood sacrifices as a means of expiating sin were removed. In the Old Testament, the punishments and remedies for sin were codified into the sacrificial rituals of the Levitical priesthood. Since there is no longer a Levitical priesthood to perform ritual sacrifices for the remission of sins, it is incumbent upon us to establish justice among ourselves. Otherwise, there's chaos. Because Yahweh's coming kingdom will be a kingdom of law, not a kingdom of feel-good lawlessness. How do we do this? By following Yahshua's example. This is why Paul repeatedly admonishes us to practice righteousness. Righteousness is justice, lawfulness. Unrighteousness is lawlessness. And there can be no justice without law. Otherwise, we are back to the opinions of men, and we know how miserably that fails. This is why antinomianism is creating a lawless, evil world. Even if there were no Jews, the so-called Judeo-Christian is making this world an evil place. The blind cannot see the consequences of their blindness until the hammer of justice hits home, and it will hit home. It's beginning to hit home. All of these people who believe in the rapture, are they escaping COVID? Are they escaping high fuel prices? Are they escaping the uh, uh, having lost their homes to Jewish usury? Have they escaped any of them? No, they haven't. They, they tell us that they won't have to go through tribulation. But it's here. Tribulation is here. It's everywhere. And they're still standing in line waiting to be raptured. How blind can they be? They may have accepted Jesus, but they haven't accepted the Savior. Yahshua has guaranteed that at his second advent. 
He will come back with the scales of justice in his hands. Jesus will return in order to rescue Israel, defeat the Antichrist, Revelation 19, through 21. Judge the nations, Matthew 25, 31 through 46. And the wicked in Israel, Ezekiel 20, 33 through 38. And rule over the Messianic kingdom, Matthew 19, 28, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6. These verses are talking about righteous government. There can be no such thing as righteous government without Yahweh's moral laws. The fruits of antinomianism are evident in the rampant lawlessness in the churches today. It's rampant. It's as bad as the secular world. It is the doctrine of good intentions without responsibility for our actions. As James said, quote, faith without works is dead, unquote. Okay? So here, James is using the word faith in the sense of, you know, belief, your mental attitude. And so he's stressing, well, in addition to your belief, your belief system, you have to perform works that, that prove that you have the right faith. James 2, 14 through 24. The modern churches are dead. They teach delusion and apostasy instead of the truth. Next heading here. Tabula rasa or carte blanche. Tabula rasa means a blank, split, a blank slate. Carte blanche means you can do anything you please. Major difference between those two concepts. Stephen Jones asks a follow-up question, namely, under the law, what did Paul mean? The phrase under the law refers to the law's attitude toward you, not your attitude toward the law. I like this. I think this is the correct explanation. The law applies to you if you sin. It's like you, you drive down the street and you you know you're not driving too fast. Well, let's just take let's just take the rules of the road as Yahweh's law. Okay, so you don't speed, or if you speed, you just you know go four or five miles, not a hundred miles over the speed limit. Reckless endangerment. Okay, you stop at the red lights because I, I think just about everybody's had the experience when they fail to stop at a stop sign or a red light, they've had a crash or two, right? There's a reason for the law, okay, especially in heavy traffic. Just You just can't ignore the law, okay? The laws are there to help society, even some of the, the, the traffic laws. But if if you create a situation where people get hurt and it's your fault, well, then the law comes and bites you. Let me repeat how he puts this here. The phrase under the law refers to the law's attitude toward you, how the law impacts you, not your attitude toward the law. A sinner who is convicted of sin or a crime is under the law. And the law will stand over him to force him to pay restitution to his victims. A sinner who has been released from his sentence, either by paying a debt in full or working it off, or having a near kinsman redeem him from debt, is under grace. In such a case, the court closes his case because he has no further work to do and has no further interest in him. The law has no jurisdiction over those who are under grace. 
Well, under grace means you are operating under brotherly love. You accept the fact that by imitating Christ, you are lawless. I'm sorry, (laughs) guiltless. By imitating Christ, you are guiltless. It only gains jurisdiction when a person commits a crime sin, okay? And obviously, Yahshua never did commit a sin. So the law, he was not under the law. He's a perfect example. The mistake that the antinomians have made is to assume that the concept of grace is an extra-legal concept. On the contrary, grace does not abolish the law at all. Grace is the legal acceptance of the redemption. Grace does not imply that the law has been abolished. It only means that we have been pardoned. And the judge can pardon you. Even if you don't deserve it, he may give you another chance without being punished. But if you do that again, chances are the second time you're going to get really punished. We are no longer under the penalties or the curses of the law, which applied to our ancestors, Adam and Eve, who were the first to violate the law. These penalties were even more strictly enforced and applied to our ancestors, the children of Israel, when they violated the Mosaic Covenant. The crimes committed under the old system were forgiven at Mount Calvary. (laughs) Nothing else was forgiven. And we are fully responsible for any sin debt that we incur for our own actions. This is what Paul means when he says, What then? Shall we sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Unquote. Romans 6.15. So grace must be considered as a temporary condition dependent on your not sinning. Because if you do fall back into sin, Paul always says, well, the wages of sin is death. Okay? It's going to come back and bite you. Somehow, the Paul defiers managed to twist his words and interpret him to mean, quote, we can no longer sin because the law has been done away with. Unquote. Itchy ears and lying lips as well. Grace is not a license to sin. It is not permission to commit sins or to disregard the moral laws. Rather, it consists in two favors that Yahweh has bestowed upon us. One, the forgiveness of past sins. And uh, this comes from Romans 3.25, where he uses the word proganomai, meaning past. Second Peter 1.9, where he uses the word palai, meaning old. That's what was forgiven. The elimination of the system of ritual sacrifices and necessarily the elimination of the Levitical priesthood which officiated these sacrifices. In this new reality or the, of the new covenant, our responsibility to avoid sin is even greater than before. How so? Because we no longer have the sacrificial rituals to fall back on. Now our responsibility is directly to Yahweh, who expects us to be righteous. We have been given a 2,000-year grace period in which to internalize his laws. This situation will not last forever. When he comes again, he will bring judgment with him. So it is incumbent upon us to write the law into our hearts with brotherly love and with a wealth of experience. Right? Have we gained any experience? Have we been kind and considerate to our brethren? Or have have we been cruel? and dogmatic 
to our brethren. Paul says exactly this, quote, What then shall we sin because we are not under the law? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience to righteousness? Romans 6, 15 and 16. So he's clearly saying here, if we are not law-abiding, then, we're, then we are servants of the devil. We are serv- servants of sin. And he says, obedience to righteousness. You never hear an antinomian quote this verse. Will you yield yourself to lawlessness or righteousness? It's really a very, and this is what people do. They yield themselves to sin when they yield to temptation. It's really a very simple proposition, but theologians and distortionists have made it very confusing. We have been given a clean slate, not a license to kill. Okay, tabula rasa. Paul's historical message to the house of Judah. Modern Judeo-Christians fail to understand that when he was speaking to Israelites of the house of Judah, Paul was trying to get these Judeans, not Jews, to understand that Christ's sacrifice had done away with the Levitical priesthood and blood sacrifices. And also the uh, oblations and offerings for sin, sin offerings, that was done away with too. Now, the fact is, we have to own up to our sins. We don't don't have, as I just said in the previous section, we don't have those sacrifices to fall back on. They have been done away with. We have to understand that this sacrificial system had been in place for nearly 1,500 years. And the Judahites were used to that. Paul was trying to get these Judahites to understand that the Passover sacrifice of Christ was the last sacrifice. But they didn't want to give those rituals up. As prophesied by their very own scriptures, old habits die hard. Today's universalists falsely assume that Paul was talking to everyone who will ever read his words. That is not true. Paul's epistles were correspondence, after all, addressed to specific groups of Israelites. And they often addressed the very particular concerns of the addressee. The word Gentile does not mean non-Israelite. This is another false teaching of the universalists. The true definition of the Latin word gentilis is kinsman. With respect to the law... The Universalists assumed that Paul was arguing against the whole law, including the Ten Commandments. On the contrary, Paul never argued against keeping the moral laws. He constantly admonished the Judeans and the Israelites of the dispersion to avoid sin. Indeed, at the end of Romans 3, he says, For the wages of sin is death, Romans 3.23. He does not say, for the wages of sin in in days gone by used to be death. He says, for the wages of sin is death. Does the present tense mean anything grammatically? Let's get this straight. Never once did Paul say that the law has been done away with. I defy anyone to find this statement anywhere in Scripture. Colossians 2.14 is the only verse that even comes close, 
and I will later prove that the antinomian interpretation of that verse is a blatant distortion of language. Getting back to the historical perspective, having eliminated the Levitical priesthood, we Israelites no longer have available to us the easy means of forgiving sin. No longer will a dove or a shekel count for forgiveness. We are expected not to sin. Otherwise, Yahweh will definitely judge us harshly at the judgment day. Speaking of the hypocrites of his day, Paul says, quote, And think you this, O man, or O Israelite, O Adamite, that judges them which do such things, and does the same, that you shall escape the judgment of God? You really think you're going to escape the judgment of God? Or despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Whoa! Whoa! The Antinomians never quote this verse. But after your hardness and impenitent heart treasure you up to yourself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render every man according to his deeds. Romans 2, verses 3 through 6. Oh, works don't count? Deeds don't count? Let me repeat this. This is one of the most profound verses in the epistles of Paul. Romans 2, verses 3 through 6. And think you this, O man, that judges them which do such things, and does the same. First of all, he's talking about the hypocrisy of certain Israelites towards others. They do the same thing while they criticize others of doing the same thing. That you shall escape, you think you that you shall escape the judgment of God? Or despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? If the law has been done away with, Repentance is not necessary. But after your hardness and impenitent heart, treasure up to yourself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render every man according to his deeds. These are the words of Paul, folks. In somewhat circumlocutionary language, Paul is saying, repent and be saved. (laughs) Rather than teaching pacifism and passivism, Paul is preaching judgment. Let us not ignore his warnings, which are just as stern as those of James, John, Peter, and even Yahshua. Is not Paul also saying that we will be judged according to our works? We will analyze Paul's teachings on the subject in greater detail a bit later because Paul definitely confirms that our works are necessary for entering into the kingdom. Next section here, the law and the covenants. Okay, nowhere. Uh, Seven of None says, if I remember right, Jones thinks it's okay for us to have sexual relations with non yeah, as I understand it, he actually did marry a, a non-white. So yeah, yeah, that would be hypocrisy, wouldn't it? <laughs> All right, let's continue. The law and the covenants. 
another major mistake, or maybe he didn't think it was a, a violation of the law, you know, because, like I say, he, he's a non-seed liner. And uh, so he, maybe he believes that all races were created in Genesis, right, or in, in the garden, right? And all races descend from Adam and Eve. Maybe he believes that. I'm not sure. Next section, the law and the covenants. Another major mistake the churches make is to equate the Mosaic law with the covenants. When they use the term old covenant, they mean the Mosaic law. But this is a simplistic equation. The Mosaic covenant was not only, was not the only covenant of the Old Testament. There were many others that had no relationship to the covenant at Mount Sinai. Whatever misunderstandings have occurred from Paul's writings, it is not possible to honestly argue that Paul's words mean that the law has been abolished or that there is no more sin for those under grace. He's only, he's only making a very logical statement. As long as you're not sinning, as long as you accept the grace of Yahshua, as long as you accept it, then you're not under the law. Why? Because you're not guilty of anything. These are false conclusions derived from some bad translations of Paul's writings and from the universalistic interpretations of most churches today. What I don't understand is how the words God forbid (laughs) can be misunderstood. Today's churches are doing exactly what God forbids, practicing lawlessness, even according to Paul. Typically, the antinomians will quote Romans 6, 1 through 14, but then they will conveniently omit verse 15 from their sermons because verse 15 absolutely refutes their interpretations of the meaning that we are not under the law. Being under the law means that you know, the, the punishment the punishment is always going to be there. It's always going to be there. But as long as you're not sinning, it doesn't apply to you. So therefore you're not under it. What Paul is saying is that we are no longer under the penalties of the Old Covenant, which involved the rituals of the Levitical priesthood. Since all the modern interpretations of the Holy Scriptures ignore their historical context, it is easy to miss the point that Paul repeatedly makes elsewhere, which is that the penalties incurred under the Law Covenant have been forgiven by the promises made to Abraham even before the law was given to us through Moses at Mount Sinai. In other words, the promise of a Redeemer was given before unto Abraham before it was given to Moses at Mount Sinai. Okay, so therefore it applies to to us, particularly in Israel, but it does not mean that because the sacrifices, and that's where the sacrificial rituals began, was at Mount Sinai, that uh, that forgiveness was contemplated by Yahweh even before Mount Sinai. So therefore, the Levitical rituals and that form of forgiveness that, that just applied because of the hard hearts of the Israelites. We're still expected to obey the law, as even Paul says that Abraham was counted righteous for obeying Yahweh according to faith. In other words, Yahweh expects us to do things correctly, even without, even if there's no law stated against it. Okay, he obeyed Yahweh's voice and was prepared to sacrifice his son Isaac 
even though there was no law given to us that we should sacrifice our own children for Yahweh. He was, Yahweh was simply testing Abraham at this point. Okay, And Yahweh had no intention of carrying that out because he, that's why he provided the, the ram in the thicket. Galatians three seventeen through 18. What I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God. Okay? So there was a covenant made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and several, many, before the covenant of the ritual law at Mount Sinai. So, as to nullify the promise. So, the, the reason why Paul is saying these, he's trying to explain to those Judahites who feel that, oh, well, because we're the ones who obey the, the Mosaic law, that we're the only ones who deserve forgiveness at the cross. No, Paul is saying the, the, uh, the Israelites of the dispersion they're also, their sins are also forgiven. Why? Because it was promised 430 years before. All right? So the Mosaic, Mosaic law has nothing to do with that. The, the promise of the Redeemer was given 430 years before the Mosaic law. And it's amazing that the Judeo Christians simply do not grasp this. For if the inheritance is based on law, which it isn't, it's based on the promises, it is no longer based on promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of promise. And we are his children, and his promises devolve down to us. Okay? We were promised a redeemer. That happened, and that has nothing to do with the Mosaic law. So when the Judahites, including Peter, objected to Paul and saying, well, no, we've been keeping the Mosaic law for these several hundred years, like 1,500 years. Now you're telling us that those who haven't been obeying this law are also forgiven? And Paul says, yes, absolutely. (laughs) Right? Because that promise was made 430 years before Mount Sinai. Don't you get it? Don't you know your own law? Or your own history? Or your own covenants? From this statement, many interpreters have falsely concluded that there was no law before Moses wrote it down, and many ministers teach this false doctrine. It is directly refuted by Genesis 26.5, quote, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws, unquote. When Paul speaks of the faith of Abraham, he is speaking of Abraham's faithfulness to Yahweh's laws, plus his reliance on Yahweh's promises, which were often independent of any laws. When Yahweh makes a promise, he keeps it. And don't you know, in the world, in this world, historically, only we Israelites have had a tradition of your word is your bond. Virtually all other cultures, with the possible exception of Japanese culture. And certainly not in the Middle East (laughs) or Africa. Their word is not their bond. They they lie constantly, make false promises, etc., and will stab you in the back 
at a moment's notice. This is Anglo-Saxon tradition, folks. And if anything, the Japanese learned it from Japheth because the Japhethites were probably you know, righteous people too, even though they didn't have the law until much later. The book of Galatians, in the book of Galatians, it is clear that the context of the epistle is the covenants given to Israel. The Mosaic covenant of Sinai is not the only covenant of the Old Testament. Again, the Universalists confuse terms that should not be confused. Our inheritance, which was instituted under the New Covenant, was not a matter of law. Although, if we want to be inheritors of the covenant, I mean, it was granted to us freely. But this is conditional. Getting into the kingdom is conditional. It was a matter of Yahweh's promise. Okay, He promised this to all Israel. Every Israelite who ever lived has had this promise given to us, him or her. This is why Paul repeatedly cautions us not to boast of our law-keeping because our forgiveness was made manifest by Yahweh's keeping of his promises to Abraham on our behalf. So thank Yahweh, thank Yahshua for what they have done for us and what they are continuing to do for us. But it's not a one-way street. We are expected to obey the law and therefore that the and have this this new method of forgiveness called repentance available to us. This means that, we, number one, we have to internalize the law and do our best to act accordingly. And if we don't, then we, then we indeed are under the law. Okay? The law, the punishments of the law, the curses of the law only apply to us when we are disobedient. The translations don't make this very clear. And uh, Moffat does a good job. Sorry, I don't have that translation with me today. The Israelites kept the Old Covenant very poorly at best. And very little has changed in that regard. The New Covenant has nothing to do with the abolition of any laws except the ritual sacrifices. We find also in the book of Hebrews that the Levitical priesthood is to be replaced by the priesthood of the order of Melchizedek. This priesthood existed long before the Levitical priesthood was established. So the New Covenant reestablished the original priesthood. Abraham was a member of this priesthood, which most definitely had Yahweh's moral law, although it had not yet been written down. Abraham even paid tithes to the high priest of this order, Genesis 14:18 through 21. So Yahshua is our new high priest, and this is the order of the priesthood of Melchizedek. This is a hereditary priesthood applying only to Israelites. The book of Daniel is very specific about what part of the law will be abolished. Quote, the sacrifices, which means the ritual sacrifices of the Levitical priesthood, and oblation, oblation is just about any kind of offering you can think of, uh, money, doves, you name it, that you can offer, you, you give of yourself to get forgiveness. Okay, it's the easy way out. <laughs> the sacrifices and oblations shall cease. Daniel 9, 27. Okay? The sacrifices and oblation shall cease. When? When Yahshua offers himself for our sins 
at the cross. An oblation was a donation or offering as opposed to a blood sacrifice. This new covenant is very clearly spelled out in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 37. With about 10 minutes left, I should be able to get through this whole quote. The days are coming, saith Yahweh, when I shall establish a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah, with the whole world, with the church, with believers, with spiritual Israelites. You can see now how blatantly the Judeos have distorted these teachings by substituting others in the place of Israel and Judah here. It's very clear the new covenant is established only with the 12 tribes and no one else. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them out of Egypt, a covenant they break and which we are still breaking today. The vast majority of Israelites are still breaking this covenant. Though I was patient with them, and he's being very patient with us too, I'm anticipating, and I think it will be part of the unfolding of these end times that more and more white Christians, formerly Judeo-Christians, will come to see things our way and realize that the law has not been abolished and come to our way of thinking. This is the only means by which they can possibly enter into the kingdom. For this is the covenant I will establish with the Israelites after those days, saith Yahweh, I shall set my law within them, writing it on their hearts. This is what happened at Pentecost, 33 AD. That doesn't mean you can't sin still. We do. We keep on sinning. But it's called a conscience. He gave us a conscience, an understanding that, you know, you feel guilty, you feel ashamed when you break this law. It's automatic. Now, if you continue to break this law, let's say you're a drug addict and you just, you know, abandon yourself to drug addiction, well, then you have made your choice. Free will has not been abolished. I shall be their Elohim if you write the law in your hearts and they will be my people. No longer need they teach one another, neighbor or brother, to know Yahweh. All of them, high and low alike, will know me, saith Yahweh, for I shall forgive their wrongdoing and their sin I shall call to mind no more. Now I think this also includes the fact in this uh, dispensation of grace, which is not antinomian, it's forgiveness, it's favor. Yahweh puts his favor on those of us who obey his laws. And so this whole concept of having repentance available to us is part of this grace period. These are the words of Yahweh who gave the sun for a light by day and the moon and the stars for their courses for a light by night, who cleft the sea and its waves roared. Yahweh of hosts is his name. Israel could no more cease to be a nation in my sight, saith Yahweh, than could this fixed order vanish before my eyes. So as long as there's sun and moon and stars stars in the sky, then his ordinances do apply. These are the words of Yahweh. I could no more spurn the whole of Israel because of what they have done than anyone could measure the heaven above or fathom the depths of the heart of the earth beneath. 
This is the word of Yahweh, the revised English version. So, no matter how many times we transgress against him, he's saying he still loves us. However, as we've been quoting from the theologians above, you've, you disobey the law, you must reap the consequences. If you're lucky and don't sin too much right, and sincerely repent, then you may still get into the kingdom because Israel will always exist. Israel will never cease to exist. That's a tremendous promise, folks. None of the dispensationalists ever refer to this passage because it refutes their entire doctrine which states that the nation of Israel will be replaced by their own multicultural church and that the law is no longer in effect. Numerous Old Testament prophecies guarantee that Israel will never cease from being a flesh and blood nation even though we will be transformed and have a new kind of body in the kingdom but we will still exist it will be a continuation of Israel in the flesh Jeremiah 31 is only one of the many beyond any doubt Israel will not cease to be a nation forever and the law will be written in our hearts and not done away with this one verse by itself demolishes the replacement theology of the modern churches the fact that the law is not abolished is absolutely crucial in understanding the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. As Stephen Jones stated above, only the form of, or of observance has changed. Instead of offering sacrifices, confess your sins to one another. James 5.16 You see, sin is still with us. Obviously, it's still with us. What has vanished is the Levitical priesthood along with its bloody rituals. With this understanding that the new covenant means that the law will be written in our hearts, how can anyone possibly teach that the law will be abolished? Of course, many of the antinomians also teach that the Old Testament is obsolete. This self-serving doctrine allows them to ignore the prophetic significance of the new covenant as contained in the Old Testament. Thus they ignore Daniel 9.27 and Jeremiah 31.31, as if these verses have no bearing on the terms of the New Covenant. No, the New Covenant was prophesied in the Old Covenant, and it must be according to the prophecies. This article entitled Law versus Lawlessness, number five, expands on the difference between the law and the covenants, which uh, I have about three minutes left. It, okay, I think that was uh, a reference to the above uh, quotations here. So finally, in conclusion today, I will just quote uh, briefly. In addition, nowhere does Paul explicitly state that the law has been abolished. This is strictly a matter of interpretation, and most of these interpretations go out of their way to avoid the context of the passages involved. In picking and choosing verses that seem to make their case, they studiously avoid verses that refute their opinion and this is pure dishonesty. Well, I guess since the law has been abolished, I can be dishonest. There is a solid principle of justice that cannot be ignored. It is this, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. In fact, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, and very few churches have that spirit anymore. 
The antinomians go out of their way to avoid dealing with the whole truth. It is their piecemeal approach to Paul's writings, which are the foundation of antinomianism, universalism, and modern dispensationalism. Later in this essay, we will cite the words of Paul, which clearly say the exact opposite of what the antinomians teach. Their failure to address these verses clearly demonstrates their dishonesty. They are dishonest to a tremendous fault. But since they teach that the law has been done away with, they think they can be dishonest. Whenever there is an apparent, that's telling a lie, folks, (laughs) thou shalt not bear false witness. Whenever there is an apparent contradiction in Scripture, this must be resolved by intensive study. This is there is no excuse for avoiding difficult verses in Scripture. If there is an apparent contradiction, it must be resolved. Yahweh does not contradict himself. His words are true, but the translators have contradicted his word. If Paul failed to explain Yahweh's intentions for Israel, then shame on him. We will see that the antinomian misunderstanding of Paul is based on a combination of poor translation and horrible interpretations. Indeed, very horrible. And both of these are exacerbated by poor scholarship. And there is very little scholarship going on in Judeo-Christianity anymore. All the denominations have their set dogma. They plan on continuing it, do or die. And uh, those denominations will perish with with their false doctrine. That includes the Catholic Church. Most uh, Most of the Protestant churches today there are some that do adhere to the law and some uh, haven't subjected themselves to lying deliberately. We can excuse some people who have been deceived by the Judeo-Christian priesthood. But there's no excuse for just closing your mind. Okay? All right, folks, thanks for listening. That's tonight's show. And uh, stay tuned tomorrow for Bloodlines and Voice of Christian Israel. Pleasure to be with you again tonight. Yeah, we bless everybody. Bye-bye. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Praise Yahweh and pass the ammunition. The Restoration Hour with Pastor Eli James.